Hello and welcome to another episode of For What It's Worth. I'm Evan Lucas, InvestMart's Chief Market Strategist, and joining me in the hot seat this week is Dr. John Hewson, Professor at the Crawford School of Public Policy at ANU and former Liberal Opposition Leader. John Hewson, thank you so much for joining us today. It's a very, very interesting time with regards to how we look at the future of economics, how we look at the future of trade, how we look at the future of our strategic position, also in places like the Pacific. You have been very strong in your views over the last couple of months, practically, let's be honest, let's over the, over the last five to 10 years, in fact, around Australia and China's relationship, but also our relationship with the US. At the moment, we have a scenario where trade is very much skewed towards China. 37% of our exports, clearly it's, it's helping and, and just holding us in, into a positive territory in GDP. How do we continue from a policy perspective, continue to have an economic mandate on one side with regards to China trade, but also manage to sort of be the, the Pacific player that clearly Washington wants us to become and also what Canberra is sort of looking at? Well, there are a lot of elements to this, of course, um, but uh, I guess the place to start is with a clear sense of what is our national interest, and quite often we seem to have a fairly fuzzy idea of what is in our national interest. A lot of politics in this country is played in very short-term, day-to-day sort of responses to events and uh, and developments as they unfold, rather than having a medium to long-term strategic view as to where we should be where we want to be and what we need to do to get there. So I'd start with a a clear redefinition, if you like, of our national interest. And in relation to China, obviously it's multifaceted and trade is very important. But so are some of the cultural links, the education links, uh, migration links, uh, you know, these are the investment links. There are a lot of, lot of elements to it where we need to, to have a, have a view from our point of view and not be dragged into circumstances which uh, (laughs) may not have been on what should be our medium-term agenda. So I think, uh, you know, from a trading point of view, China relies on trade, not as much perhaps as, uh, you know, the the trade is more important to us than it is to them, if you know what I mean. Mm -hmm. And uh, so they're they're obviously going to have a a less enthusiastic view, but trade is fundamentally important to their development. It has been so far, although they are transitioning domestically from what was an investment-based economy to one that's more about consumer-orientated, service-orientated. That's a a long-term transition, which they're in the early stages of, I guess. But they will continue to be a significant trading force. And our danger is, of course, what happens between the bigger players like the United States and Europe in relation to China and uh, whether, you know, when the two elephants are mating, we get squeezed. So far, we've been able to protect our interests in terms of the U.S., um, trade war with China, but you know I take nothing for granted in that respect, and so we need to be developing our own relationships with China um, quite separately from the US uh, in cold hard terms. On that, that's actually quite an interesting point because developing our, our relationship is certainly something that some would argue over the last three to f- probably five years has slightly waned um, under two prime ministerships over over the last five years. Our trade with them has still remained robust, as you've alluded to, but but policy mm. is different. How mm. would you look at it from regards to? And, and I want to also talk to you about it in terms of you know how the Chinese think. They think in generations. They talk in decades. They don't talk in absolutely short, talk in short termism. What sort of policy do you think Canberra right now should be looking at China? And the other part of that question is, as you also said before, is 
you know, China is now, you know, transitioning away from being a manufacturing-led economy towards mm. a middle-class economy. Are there other parts of the EM world, the emerging market worlds, that we should also be concentrating on? Is that India? Is that Southeast Asia? Well, yeah, look, I think you're right. I mean, the key point that you made there is that China and others do think in terms of generations they plan, they have rolling strategic plans, they, they put a high priority on achieving those plans. Uh, in the case of China, for example, their growth rate is fundamentally uh, is a fundamentally important element of that. Um, but, um, you know, I think uh, you couldn't, uh, the, the pace at which they're going, India could end up being uh, a very large economy very soon. Uh, it's certainly growing faster than China these days. And, uh, you know, that's a matter of pride to the Indians. But again, you know, from our point of view, we've got to take that longer term strategic view. I mean, the simple question is, what is our end game? They have a very clear idea of what their end game is. And, they, okay, they are more a communist, uh, socialist type uh, political structure than they are a market economy, even though they rely on market forces. Uh, it's a very different world to us, but they, and they can, it's easy for them to take a medium to longer term strategic view. But having said that, I think the challenge for Australian governments is to step out of day-to-day politics and, and do that. And when you've got that medium-term objective, then come back and say, okay, what do we need to do now in trade or education or what are the other links and, and uh, to achieve that, that objective? And that doesn't require us to put all our eggs in one basket. I mean, we, presumably, we should be developing much more s- successful and strategic relationships with other countries like India, Indonesia. I mean, it's not, you know, it may be not too long before Indonesia's... Uh, clearly established in the G20 and we're not <laughs> at the pace at which they're growing. So these are medium-term realities which we need to, to factor into our thinking. And I've always been surprised, for example, even though Indonesia is so close to us and such a huge market and, and we have a lot of complementarity with Indonesia, we have pretty much an undeveloped relationship which has been buffeted by short-term political considerations, as has a point you made about China. We've had We've, we, they've had a, you know, a few setbacks in recent years in relation to that, in, in terms of that relationship. And I think what the Chinese would be looking for is us to, A, have that clear medium-term strategic view and then to be very direct in what we want and what we expect and what we will accept and what we won't accept. I mean, we'll have views about some areas where, where China will be deficient. Uh, for example, I think in human rights, in animal cruelty, I mean, the whole host of issues that you can think of but we would be stating a different position, but at the same time, we wouldn't be compromising our trading position by standing on our principles. So they're, they're complicated issues. There's no definitive sort of <laughs> somebody to be put on one page. Mm-hmm. I mean, it's going, something's going to be developed over time. Can I ask the question, therefore, from that is, do you believe, and, and again, it has been a very, very different way to look at how you do the diplomacy with a Trump presidency. Do you think that the Chinese have really had to sit up and, and understand how to work with somebody like him? Is is through all the bombasticness that is the Trump presidency and, and him as a person, does his mm. directness actually mean that they have managed to probably get China to finally react the way they wanted? Is that something that we should be thinking about going forward? Or is it another more direct route that we should probably going down to, to try and sort of get the Chinese to sit up and actually probably the word is almost respect us in, in what we sit. Yeah, look, I think, I think um, 
with Trump and taking a Chinese medium term view, they'll see him come and go. They don't think he's a long-term phenomenon, uh, even though he might win a second term. Mm-hmm. They're, they're planning horizons a lot longer than that. There's no doubt, nevertheless, that in the short term, what he's been doing in terms of tariff impact on China had, has had an impact. Uh, the Chinese economy is slowing. Uh, they've had to stimulate it much more, perhaps, than they would have planned to do, even just uh, 12 or 18 months ago. But I don't think they're going to think that's a permanent change. I think they'll see that as, as a, you know, a disruption, which they have to deal with. And, of course, they have unique capacity in a communist state to actually you know, pull a lot of forces together to, to weather these sort of storms. But, um, you know, you can only push them so far. I think at the same time, they've done a lot, for example, in marshalling, in, in sort of developing a much closer relationship with North Korea than Trump has been able to do. Uh, in the same period. So uh, they're working on a number of fronts. They're working against that medium-term strategic view. And um, in those terms, and Trump is a short-term disruption. Uh, whether he, you know, those sort of forces will be sustained, I think the Chinese would doubt it. So they'll manage it. You've been alluding to a lot about the Chinese growth and, and it's slowing down. We saw their, their second quarter GDP come out this week. It's come in at 6.3% year-on-year. It came in at 1.6% quarter-on-quarter. That's the slowest growth in a decade and 27 years on the quarter one. The Chinese, as you've alluded to, are stimulating. We know that they've changed their reserve requirement ratios at banks. Clearly, Beijing's original idea around their financial stability mechanisms have been slightly wound back. But infrastructure is the big one here, and that sort of brings in my question towards Australia as well. Is net exports going to save us from a possibility of moving into a recession in Australia or putting China to one side? Is there, and now moving towards a more domestic focus, is there something else here that we have to really look at to try and stave off the R word? Because there is growing belief that if we keep going the way we are, you know, our growth could fall to 1.3 to 1.5% for the second quarter for year on year. Is is there other ways that you see us sort of stimulating our economy? And then getting back to the first part of the question around, you know, what is China going yeah. to try and do longer term? Well, just on China, before we answer that, um, their growth rate numbers are managed. I mean, they're the only country in the world that, that targets GDP. And if you look from quarter to quarter, they don't bounce around very much like most industrial countries' growth rates do because they're managed. I mean, I was in China a few years ago in the middle of the month of September, they announced the growth rate for the September quarter. You've got to figure that before the quarter is finished, that's rather <laughs> clever. This is what they do. And, and, they, and it's, it's fundamentally important that they do achieve, pretty much achieve their target objectives, even though they factored in the fact that, uh, you know, the growth is slowing. But the real growth rate might be more like four or five rather than six plus, if you know what I mean. Mm-hmm. And, um, because they're struggling with a whole lot, not just a Trump phenomenon from offshore, they're struggling with a lot of domestic issues, inequality, the transition I mentioned before from you know, sort of an investment-based economy to a consumer and services-based economy, rising middle class. Um, they've got pollution, they've got corruption, they've got an, a rapidly ageing population, something like 250 million more people will be aged over 65, I think, by 2050, and there'll be 240 million less people to support them, and uh, that's within the context of a population that's going to shrink from well over a billion, billion and a quarter to under a billion. So these are big structural challenges which they're dealing with at the, at the same time. And infrastructure has been important to them in that, and you, you're dead right. 
Um, that's been a way of them being able to, they can accelerate it, they build very fast trains very fast, if you like, you know what I mean? <laughs> yes. they, they, um, they, they, are, they are moving very fast in those areas and they're trying to keep the economy going. But they have very large debt, uh, you know, over 300% of GDP. This is not, and a lot of it's in secondary banking. It's not easy for them to manage this. The lessons for us are that our economy has been slowing for quite some time. And actually, if you look at the quarterly growth numbers, We've been lucky. There's been something that's popped up in each quarter. It might be trade. It might be, it might be inventory build up. It might be, it might be government spending or whatever. But there's something each quarter that sort of kept us above zero. But yep. when you're getting growth rates per quarter of 2.3.4, you know, take a standard error on that. They're not far off zero. We are very close to drifting into a recession after what is it, 28 years of consecutive. Uh, um, you know, positive growth. So, uh, you know, the challenge is there and uh, the government's obviously made its judgment that these tax cuts and Reserve Bank lowering interest rates will make a difference. But, I mean, we've got some big structural problems of our own. I mean, uh, trade may save us, but I don't think, I think world trade, if anything, is going to slow down. I think despite the US growth numbers will probably be okay this week, but they mean the US could slow rapidly towards recession in 2020 short-term stimulus from Trump's tax package and, and other spending, defence infrastructure spending, okay, it's done something, but it, and it's, it's delayed a recession. But uh, you know, when the Fed is out, they're clearly lowering interest rates on the response, not only because of pressure from, from Trump, but because they have assessed the economy is slowing much more than, than, they'd, uh, than they would like or that they've assumed. Then, of course, you get a... Get a you know, you get the the Fed deciding it's going to have to lower interest rates, and it's and it's doing it. But whether that does anything, but you know, further stimulate the, the, the stock delays, market, yeah, delays the inevitable. You know, the, the stock market. You've got asset price inflation. This is interesting. The world is saying, do we have any? We don't have any inflation. How we've pumped so much, pushed interest rates down to zero or near zero or negative in some cases. We've pumped a lot of liquidity into the system. I think the G7 balance sheets are over three times what the central bank balance sheets are over three times what they were at the time of the GFC. Pumped a lot of liquidity into the system and it hasn't stimulated measured inflation, but it clearly has stimulated asset inflation. You've got bubbles in stock markets and property markets and and the bond markets been telling you that you know there's a danger of a of a recession. So I mean this is a very complicated set of circumstances in which we in Australia they're all risks for us. Everything I've just said is a risk for us yep. and how it unfolds. We could have a global financial crisis, could have the US and the rest of the world slow down to, towards recession. We could have you know, some fallout from the trade war. We could have some of these geopolitical tensions result in you know, conflict in the Middle East. There's a, these are all negatives for us at a time where our growth rate is flat. And if you look at the household sector, 65 or 70% of GDP, in consumer spending, I mean, wages are flat, house prices have been falling, wealth has been falling, um, record levels of debt, household debt is uh, nearly 120% of GDP and nearly 200% of household disposable income. I mean, these are very significant structural constraints. And indeed, if the Reserve Bank keeps pushing interest rates down and they keep stimulating, improving, if you like, housing affordability, it only adds to the problem. It just pushes it down the road a bit. It does. So you're looking at stock markets that are really overvalued around the world, US much more than ours, but seriously, seriously overvalued. Um, and if those earnings numbers in the next uh, year or two don't match that, I think you could easily have a stock market correction. Oh, I think that's a, that's a certainty to see some sort of stock market correction, considering, as you alluded to, the, the bond market. I, 
The interesting thing I find about the bond market is obviously we've had two scenarios in the last three months of the US inversion and the, the bond market recession right. risk. Um, the interesting thing about it is that it's an 18 to 24-month predictor, and the thing that fascinates me about that is that 18 months from now is the peak of the US presidential election. I'm going to put that to one side because that'll be very interesting yeah. for well, Trump. That's why I think I think it's going to be a tough year, 2020, in the US. I mean, yep. Trump will be damaged by what Congress does to him. Yep. Uh, what he's done to himself and what they expose, if you like. But but uh, also, if the US economy is coming off the boil, his stocks will wane quite quickly and it would be a very difficult year, it 2020. I want to pick up something that you talk about there a couple of times there, and I know it's something you, you speak about quite often. It's, it's using the word debt. Um, because debt is obviously seen mm. as, as a negative word, depending, mm. well, particularly in the public. I know you and I, in what we do, we talk about debt as a tool. Is probably the, the way to look at it. Getting back to your mm. talk around Australia, around you know the fact that we are growing basically at zero quarter on quarter. The you know everybody is alluding to possible infrastructure spending here in Australia. The fact that the federal government has the capacity probably to go ahead. The, you know, as you've alluded to, interest mm. rates are at levels we've basically never seen in the developed world time post uh, two thousand. Uh, sorry, World War Two. There's been some interesting things I think you've said. I'd, I'd really like to sort of flesh out your talk around an Australian infrastructure bond. I, this is the one thing at the moment that I think sometimes misses between fiscal and monetary policy, between the investment world and the public world, yeah. is there isn't enough – word is almost creativity with regards to how mm. we can actually – do these kinds of projects, fund them, and actually be mutually beneficial from a public side and a private side. Can you just sort of explain how you think around that infrastructure yeah. bond, et cetera? Yeah, look, a lot of the, the government would claim it's got about $100 billion worth of infrastructure projects plus some state government projects. They're all spread out over the next decade or so. Add to that some of the defence spending, all of it unfunded, all of it hard to bring forward because, you know, you've got very slow approval processes in Australia, you've got very poor... Um, you have cost-benefit assessment processes on some of these projects and so on. But uh, if you look at the reality of where we sit today, we are a triple-A-rated country, one of uh, eight or ten, I suppose, that are. Uh, bond rates is, uh, are at historic lows. We could raise 30 to 50-year money very cheaply, probably under 2% coupon. Um, and, uh, you know, we could use an Australian infrastructure bond to do that. I've done a lot of work with uh, sovereign wealth funds and survey and rating them on their management of climate risk, but sovereign wealth funds, insurance companies, pension superannuation funds globally, central banks, they would find that asset class really attractive. Australian government guaranteed long-term infrastructure bond, which could uh, you know, then underwrite the acceleration of a, what could be an infrastructure revolution. I'm thinking big ticket stuff, mm-hmm. you know, metros in Sydney and Melbourne, fast trains, some of the big water projects, some of the, the things that don't get done because they get lost in the day-to-day debate about whether debt is good or bad. I mean, uh, some debt is, is bad. Obviously, I think you should not use debt basically to fund recurrent expenditure. But for infrastructure projects that, that are productive, effectively productive, that can generate the capacity to, to both service the debt and repay the debt, uh, sensible uh, based on sensible independent cost-benefit assessments of projects, I mean, you've got a unique opportunity right now for Australia. We've never had one like this. Uh, And um, to me, the time is is right to actually start thinking about that. And as you say, be a bit creative and, you know, just get away from this simple notion which some of our prime ministers have spent there all the time saying debt is bad. If all debt was bad, none of us would buy a house. We wouldn't build a business. (laughs) Obviously, not all debt is bad. 
productively employed debt is is good, yep. can be good, and can raise our, our, our medium-term sense, can raise our, our growth capacity and our productivity enormously. But um, start thinking about that. And uh, I don't see anybody really prepared to just sort of, you know, step outside the traditional sort of hesitancy fiscal conservatism that, you know, that we shouldn't we should be having anything that expands debt, even though, you know, if you look at it, these projects that are, are already identified, they're not going to get done on time and they're going to end up costing a lot more and be hard to fund right to the 2020s. The question, therefore, from that is, is how does something like that come about? Is it a bipartisan movement? Is it looking at actually, you know, getting some form of you know, independent government body, world body that can actually cost these things, that can sort of force, you know, a government well, or at least, you know, a, a, a party to actually start considering this kind of idea. You could, you could revamp Infrastructure Australia to do the, the project assessment. It'd have to be open, transparent and accountable, much more than it is, but it could identify projects. It could assess projects as they're put forward by state governments or by the private sector or by the federal government. I mean, you could come to a way of prioritising those projects as well. The money that you'd raise from the bond, you'd have to manage outside of government. It couldn't go into consolidated revenue. It'd have to be run in a separate fund that would be able to take debt and equity positions in some of these projects, probably in conjunction with the private sector, perhaps in conjunction with the, the, um, the uh, you know, private domestic and foreign future fund, yep. you know, all sorts of ways in which these projects could be structured if they're, if they're financially viable. And that, that's that's the challenge. How does it happen in government? Somebody's got to own it is the answer. Somebody's got to be prepared to say, we're going to do this. Look, I think if Morrison came out and decided to define his his government by being, you know, basically one that's prepared to, to push infrastructure seriously, uh, and then I think it, it's a unique opportunity for the Morrison government. I don't think you get much opposition. You might get you know, a bit of backbiting from the opposition, uh, federal opposition, and, and, uh, on particular projects. But basically, I, I think it, it could come together in a bipartisan way. It will be a fascinating decade to two decades going forward. John Hewson, thank you so much for your time today. Thanks very much, mate. That's all for this week. If you're interested in finding out more about Investmart, where you'll find all of our previous episodes, as well as Alan Collar's weekend briefing, thoughts from Australia's best financial commentators, please head to investmart.com.au. InvestSmart, let's make wealth happen.